Uh, just before I pause and pray, I just wanted to give a little bit of context that today we're continuing our Encountering Jesus series. Well, we're actually not continuing. This is our last week. Who's enjoyed the last seven weeks of this series? been amazing uh, looking throughout Scripture at ways that Jesus intervened in people's lives and had a profound impact. So we're finishing that up today with a beautiful story. But why don't we just pause and pray? Lord Jesus, we take a moment and we become aware of your presence now, that you're already here in the room with us. And so, God, we just open our ears to your voice. We pray that you would just move upon our heart this morning. Come and challenge us as we gather around your word today, Lord God. I pray for people who might be new to church and are feeling a little bit uncomfortable. And I just pray that across the themes of this story that they would realize that they're so welcome here, that you are calling every person back to yourself. And so, God, we just pray that there'd be a real sense of peace around your presence as we gather this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. When I was nine years old, uh, I didn't have any pets, which was a little bit of a tragic moment in my life. And I had this one friend, his name was Daniel. This is when we were nine years old. Daniel and I uh, would often dream about what kind of pet would be the perfect pet for the Casino household. Daniel had all manner of pets. He had birds in aviaries. He had a breeding program with fish. He had cats and dogs. And I had zero pets. And so Daniel would, and I would ride our bike down to the pet shop Actually, I think we're missing a key moment here, which is the picture of a rat. <laughs> and I just needed to get a general consensus across the room. How many people here love rats? Michael, you... I, oh, what? Are you serious, guys? You would own, actually own a pet rat? Okay, we'll be praying for you across the duration of today's sermon. I also thought rats were quite cute at the time. Anyway, I would go to my mum and I'd say, Mum, can we... Get a pet dog. No, Mum, we can't have a dog. Can we have a cat? Nope, we can't have a cat. Until one day, Daniel and I set our eyes upon a pet rat at the local pet shop. We thought, this is the pet for the casinos. So we rode home. Hey, Mum, can I have a pet rat? Absolutely not. Like every good mother. Sorry. No, no, no. Sorry for those of you who love rats. There's nothing wrong with you. You're welcome here. Jesus has a plan for your life. Um, <laughs> Anyway, Daniel and I, in a feat of engineering mastery, decided to construct our own rat enclosure. It had multiple rooms and ducting connecting them. It was really quite sophisticated. And we stashed it because, remember, we weren't allowed to buy this rat. So it was hidden in the bowels of our backyard somewhere. And we rode our bike, purchased the rat with our own hard-earned money, rode back home and and played with this pet rat. And it was great. Euphoria, joy, bliss. We now have a pet until 2 a.m. that night, where I'm lying awake at night, staring at the ceiling, cold sweat, just gripped with my own sin, and <laughs> that I have let my own mother down. I've betrayed her, and uh, I've bought this rat, even though she told me not to, and I ended up uh, going beside her bed on my knees, weeping, bawling my eyes out, screaming, Mom, I went and bought a rat. And so this is what it feels like to be, <laughs> that's so weird. This is what it feels like to be overcome with grief and guilt. Now, I realised after the 8am service, I never told anyone the end of the story. And so many people are like, what happened to the rat? And honest to God truth, I can't remember. <laughs> but I do have this weird memory that we were going for a swim about six months later and a rat popped its head out beside the pool. So maybe we just let it go and it's still there. There might be 10,000 rats in that um, part of Cleveland, thanks to me. 
Anyway, that really wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story was that feeling of being overcome with guilt and shame. And as funny as that story is, I wonder if some of us have come to church today. Maybe we've put on the brave face, but we've still got issues of our own sin deep within us. And the title of today's message is The Sinful Outcast. Today we're looking at an encounter with Jesus where a woman has a profound encounter with Jesus. Just some context first of all. Uh, Last week Fiona preached on the passage of the rising of the son of the widow from Nain. Does everyone remember that? Anyone who was here? Uh, A man who obviously was dead, raised to life. Profound encounter. And uh, this is in the same Uh, chapter of Luke. So a few chapters later, and it's important to note this because by now Jesus' renown was spreading all through the region. There was already many uh, miracles, signs and wonders. John the Baptist's disciples had already had their radar up. Maybe this is the coming one. Maybe this is the Messiah. So John sends disciples to find out, is Jesus the one? And so already many religious leaders are starting to figure out and and wonder who is this man and what's he about. And that's why Simon the Pharisee uh, decides to go and invite Jesus to his house. I wanted to just pause before we read the story and have a look at some of the characters. Now, this seems obvious, Jesus, as the central character of this story. Sometimes we can read these passages of Scripture and think about the nature of sin or a religious leader and forget the fact that Jesus is central. Even as we prayed before and became aware of the presence of Jesus, it would be my heart for you today that we would all be aware that Jesus' presence is here now. He sees you and he loves you and he has a plan and a purpose for your life. The second character we can see is the sinful woman. Now, in this version of the story, there are four different tellings, perhaps of the same story uh, or of different stories. I'll let you go and do your own study. Uh, for anyone online, you guys might even like to Google right now while you're there as to, you know, is it the same, the same woman or not? I always thought it was. Many theologians believe it could be multiple uh, different anointing stories. Uh, but in this story, in the book of Luke, um, she doesn't have a name. And what we do know, though, is that she had a profound reputation for being a sinful woman. Many theologians would believe that she was a prostitute, if not probably a public thief. She was well-known, had a reputation, and uh, it was visible and clear who she was. And the third person we see in the story is Simon the Pharisee. He was an influential Jewish sect leader. And uh, in Jesus' time, they were known for their emphasis on strict personal Purity. In fact, the name Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word that means to be set apart. And so for them, the obsession was, how can I live to the highest standard of observance of not only the Torah, uh, the the Old Testament uh, law, but also a large number of oral traditions, spoken word traditions that had been added to the Torah since. And so what we see here is these three people uh, coming together and in a profound encounter with Jesus. If you've got your Bible, you might like to open it with me today, and we're going to read together from Luke 7.36, or you'll see it on the screen here as well. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head 
and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose, the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint, you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. A beautiful passage. And uh, there's many themes that we can unpack here. But I think it's important, first of all, that we look at this issue of the nature of sin. It's an uncomfortable word that we don't like to think about. And as I mentioned in that opening story that we all wrestle with and are grappling with the weight of sin and guilt and shame in our lives. Let's have a look particularly at the beginning of that passage uh, in Luke 7.36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. Now listen here. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. As I mentioned before, this woman clearly had a reputation. You might be one of those people who think, if I go to church, the building might collapse on me. <laughs> Maybe that's why you're joining us online now. You're just checking us out because you feel that you're not worthy. You've got too much baggage. You've seen too much. You've done too much. You might be in the room putting on a brave face, feeling like that today, feeling a bit nervous. And what I'd love to say to you is that at New Life, you are welcome here because Jesus welcomes you. If there's one message you receive today, it would be that. Jesus welcomes you and he calls you and he has a plan for your life. But more than that, you might be a little bit like me, a little bit further on your journey with Jesus and maybe you've lost touch with what it means to feel like that. You might have become a little bit judgmental. You might have thought, oh, I'd never wear that to church or that dress is a bit short or they look a little bit unusual here. I've thought things like that. I've thought things like that this week. You don't belong here. And so maybe there's a moment for us to look at our own heart and be mindful that Jesus is calling everyone to himself. 
The problem with that idea that I've got it together and you don't is this passage that we've many of us have heard before in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. An inconvenient truth. No one's got it together. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus told a parable in this story about two people who had a significant debt, a few months' wage and over a year's wage equivalent to a master. But the principle is both people had a debt. All have sinned. All have a debt to God. The beauty here is that one person was aware of the debt and the other wasn't. And so maybe that's the better question to ask today. Do we have sin in our life and are we aware of it? I found this incredible quote from C.S. Lewis this week. In Mere Christianity, he said, The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronising and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. It's easy in our walk to elevate some sins as higher than other sins, maybe the more visible ones or the ones that affect our reputation a little bit more easily. But in this case here, as Lewis is pointing out, it's actually the issues in our heart of pride, issues of power abuse. And I just as I read that quote, I just found myself looking at my own heart, my own intentions, my own motivations. As I said before, if all have sinned, perhaps we need to ask the question, what is our response to the inevitable sin in our lives? Jesus, uh, in the book of Matthew, we see a, a story where he encountered another group of Pharisees and he had something fairly uh, profound, a little bit blunt to say to them. We'll have a look together, Matthew 23, 27. He said this, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That sounds harsh to us, but to a Pharisee who was obsessed with the idea of ritual purity, for Jesus to describe them as a decent-looking tomb on the outward appearance containing a literal death inside would have been an absolutely horrific claim. Maybe we just pause there and we ask the Holy Spirit to just press on any issue of our lives where we are more concerned with keeping it together than dealing with the issues of uncleanness on the inside of our heart. We know throughout Scripture, God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. The alternative approach to sin is this woman who while she's still yet to clear up her outward appearance or her reputation, she is penitent, repentant in her heart, weeping at Jesus' feet. Many scholars believe that she had already had an encounter with Jesus and so had understood what it means to be saved and is weeping with joy in his presence. Regardless of who you see yourself is, uh, as in this story, we all have a debt to pay for our wrongdoing. But here comes the good news. The way we approach Jesus 
has the ability to change everything. You might be struggling to draw the connection between your life today, your struggle with sin and guilt and a figure who walked in Israel 2,000 years ago. But I would believe, and I do believe, that Jesus is alive. We've already sung about it this morning, that he rose again. And I believe that he is with us as tangibly as he was with those people in the room on that day. So what's Jesus going to do for you today? What do you ask of him? What's your prayer to Jesus concerning your sin? How are you going to respond to him? Which brings me to our second theme to look at. How do we react when Jesus is in the room? In this story, again, we see two profoundly different approaches to Jesus. Have a look here in Luke 8.39, the way the Pharisee actually does the opposite to worshipping Jesus and brings him down in his mind. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You can see here this Pharisee, somewhere else in the story, he said, yes, teacher. So he thought, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll honour this man as a teacher. But in his mind, he's thinking, I can't even honour this man as a prophet because I even know better than him. This woman is clearly a sinner and he's, not even, he's allowing her to touch him. She's unclean. What kind of prophet is this? You can see the opposite of worship here, where he's degrading Jesus. He's saying, this man's not worth anything. He's not even a decent prophet. I put to you that it's possible to be with Jesus, to acknowledge his presence, and not worship him. And so for us in the room... Are there times where maybe we've grown a little bit indifferent to the presence of God? Maybe a little bit sophisticated. Maybe we've lost our first love. Perhaps even a little bit critical. And I'll be honest and vulnerable for a moment. In my job, part of my role is facilitating a corporate gathering, worship experience, and it's easy to become critical. You can think, typo in the lyrics. Something's a bit out of tune. We can become critical with regards to the presence of God. Now, worship is so much more than two songs at the beginning of a, of a service. It's about a lifestyle, but it's the closest example for me in my personal walk. And I would put to you, is it possible that we've become a little bit professional in our approach to the presence of God? Further cultural context for how a guest should have been treated is important to note. As we look through this passage, through verses 44 to 46, Jesus says to the Pharisee, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. You didn't anoint my head with oil. Those are things we don't traditionally do when someone comes over to our house, but in the time that would have been appropriate at a base level of interaction for a guest, particularly remembering that Simon invited Jesus to his house. He didn't even offer to wash his feet, which was very standard cultural custom at the time. However, we can see this woman's response, by contrast, is almost completely over the top. She's washed 
his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. She's not ceased to kiss his feet since the time he came in and she's anointed his feet with fragrant oil. A little bit bizarre, let's be honest. Let's call a spade a spade. We can't really see the cultural context of someone washing our feet with their hair. It's a little bit out there, right? But what we can see is the measure of her love and her affection for her saviour, Jesus. And I guess that's what we're pushing into today. Have we lost our love? Have we lost what it means to be in awe and in wonder of a saving and a loving God? I can remember times when I've been so overcome with emotion in church that I've been brought to tears. But at the other time, I can find myself so concerned with what people think of me. I remember the first time I stood up here, led worship on a Sunday night service, and I literally fell down the stairs. It's a real James Casino moment. But we can get so caught up with what people think of us that it can be crippling. This woman, by contrast, was completely focused on her Lord and her Saviour, Jesus. I'd say today that what we'd be doing, what I'd be asking of us as a church community is can we return to our love for Jesus, our passion for him? Reminded me of 2 Samuel 6, this beautiful story of King David when the Ark of the Covenant is finally restored to Israel. It's a historic moment for him. And in response, he chooses to dance in an unbridled way before Jesus. It really does actually remind me of something I would do. Um, <laughs> He goes a step further and he actually gets some of his gear off. If you want to go into the uh, theological understanding, he's dancing in his undies before the Lord. I'm not saying that we should do that in church. But again, he doesn't care what people think of him. There are people hurling criticism. Even his own wife is saying, David, tone it down a notch. But he is so overwhelmed with the presence of God. I wanted to pause here and just give a final note of context that um, my previous role, I worked for Open Doors, who work with the persecuted church. Brother Andrew actually passed away this week. So uh, I know Open Doors would love you to continue to pray for the forward motion of that organisation. But something I learned about worship from them is that you can't always have the luxury of extravagant, loud public gatherings. In the Central Asian church, they can't even clap or sing aloud because local authorities will find them, put them in prison. I also was reminded of a Pakistani believer who I met and she said the most profound sentence after a spate of bombings in Lahore that she will continue to go to worship uh, because even though there's a risk of an attack and she said even if I die while I'm worshipping at least then I will enter into the fullness of worship with my God. Profound. We have absolute liberty and luxury in contrast and what do we do with those freedoms? Are we aware of his presence today? How do we respond when Jesus is in the room? My final thought and my final theme here is that Jesus forgives sinners. In Luke 7, 48, then Jesus said to this woman, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Did you know something? There's only two stories in the Bible where Jesus forgave someone before 
he went to the cross and died. Can you think of what the other story might have been? This profound moment where four men lowered the paralytic through the roof and Jesus heals the man and then says his sins are forgiven. It's an amazing, mind-blowing moment. I wrestled with this theologically because I always thought there had to be a sacrifice of blood. Jesus had to die before he could forgive sins. And then I realized he's Jesus. <laughs> he could probably do what he wants. <laughs> he literally breathed the sun out of his mouth. And so uh, uh, <laughs> Jesus wants to forgive before he died on the cross. I'm cool with it. That's good for me. Jesus still forgives sinners. Just thinking of that image of the paralytic man being lowered into the room and because of the faith of those men, him being healed and saved reminds me of Alpha. You would have just heard earlier that we're in an opportunity in this season. The next few weeks, Alpha is starting. And I think of that image of the men lowering that body, the man who was unable to get to Jesus. That's a little bit what an Alpha invitation is like. Why don't you begin to pray and think about the opportunity to stir your faith? Do you believe this phrase that's on the screen that Jesus forgives sinners? Maybe now's your chance to exercise your faith and introduce someone to Jesus through the ministry of Alpha. Last week, we sung a beautiful hymn, one of my favourite songs, and it summarises so beautifully the joy that we can now inhibit through these uh, through the knowledge of our salvation in Jesus. I've got the lyrics up here on the screen. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Remember the story about the rat, the sense of guilt and of shame. How many of us have still got that hanging around our neck today? You can bring your guilt to Jesus. He's here. He still forgives sinners. He's still got a purpose for your life and a plan for your life. For the rest of you who are feeling confronted by this idea of inward shame, maybe I've been curating this external perfection for so long, but I'm crippled on the inside. Jesus still forgives sinners. Whether your debt is small or your debt is large, Jesus is here today. We looked at Romans 3.23 that said, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the beauty is, Paul goes on in Romans to teach us the solution. Romans 10 verse 9 says this, That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Jesus still forgives sinners.